This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. My guest today is Annie Evans, the Director of Education and Outreach for New American History at the University of Richmond in the great state of Virginia. Annie is a National Geographic Society Grosvenor Teacher Fellow, a National Geographic Certified Educator and Trainer, and Co-Coordinator of the Virginia Geographic Alliance. She has over 30 years of classroom and educational leadership experience, and she designs curriculum and facilitates professional learning for K-16 teachers and museum educators. Her focus is on historical thinking skills, geoliteracy, instructional coaching, project-based learning, and performance assessments. Annie's CV includes being a World Studies Coordinator, an instructional coach, lead social studies teacher, United States Park Service Ranger teacher, Virginia Tech University Department of Geography teacher and consultant, and an adjunct professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University's Department of Geography and Urban Studies. Annie shared with me that the life of Annie Evans so far has four parts, student, teacher, curriculum specialist, and advocate. About herself, Annie writes, quote, born and raised in Virginia, I was one of five kids growing up in the Northern Virginia, DC suburbs. Educated in Fairfax County Public Schools, I was an avid reader, amateur historian, museum enthusiast, marching band drummer, and editor of my high school newspaper. I attended James Madison University, the teacher college, and loved the foundation and pedagogy and friendships I made there. Early on in my K-12 teaching career, I taught middle school social studies in Richmond, Virginia, became active in the National Geographic Education Network, and earned a master's in curriculum and instruction with a focus on geoliteracy and place-based learning. An early adopter of digital scholarship and GIS education platforms, I am now working with historian Ed Ayers at the University of Richmond as Director of Education and Outreach for New American History, creating OER tools and digital resources to engage all learners in making connections across space, place, and time, end quote. Annie also wrote, and I quote, a successful day is when I go to bed knowing that I have sparked curiosity or helped someone want to explore or learn something new. A successful day is when I put good out into the world, shared a truthful narrative and engaging conversation, end quote. I've known Annie for almost two years. In my role as an evangelist for the What School Could Be global online community, I have watched Annie be one of the most active and influential members. And she's an awesome human being. And now, here's my conversation with Annie Evans. 
Annie Evans, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. So, Annie, something very profound happened to you at an early age while you, a Girl Scout, were touring Mount Vernon, which is President Washington's home in Virginia. So, what happened on the tour, and in what ways does this moment provide clues into the DNA of Annie Evans, the educator who seeks to build a way to include every young person in the stories of our past? Yeah, this is a very vivid memory of mine. I was raised less than 10 miles from Mount Vernon. I had been there a million times. You know, when you live in the D.C. area, people that come to visit, they always want to go to certain historic sites and museums. But in this particular instance, my mother was a Girl Scout troop leader for my older sister. She's a couple of years ahead of me. So I was sort of the brownie tag along on a junior Girl Scout trip to Mount Vernon And we were on the house tour and the tour guide was talking about things like the China and how Martha Washington entertained. And at the end, she asked if there were any questions. So I raised my hand and I said, where did the people who worked in the house, the enslaved people, where did they sleep? And at first she pretended like she didn't hear me. She just ignored me and went on to the next question. So I raised my hand and I spoke a little louder and I said, excuse me, I ask you a question. And I repeated it and she got very flustered. And then she turned to my mother and said, she's being disruptive. She needs to leave. Wow. And so my mother was polite and she took me by the hand and she asked the other leader if she was okay with the other girls. And so we went outside and I thought I was in trouble. You know, I I thought I was going to get in a little bit of trouble there. And I started to cry. And my mother said, why are you crying? And I said, well, I think I'm in trouble. And she said, wipe your tears. You're not in trouble. And then she squatted down. So she was at eye level with me. And she said, Mm. and you asked a perfectly reasonable question. Mm. They're just not ready to answer it yet. But she said she was proud of me. I'll never forget this. She, I'm getting goosebumps now. She said, but I'm proud of you and I want you to keep asking those questions because someday, hopefully they will. Mm. And that just stuck with me. And I think it, it kept coming back. That memory came back to me time and time again as I grew older, as I started learning more about history myself. As I went into the teaching profession, I, you know, that, that conversation with my mom and she mentioned it a few times. She said, you know, I always knew that you were going to be that teacher who didn't care what the rules were. (laughs) My dad was a teacher and he was kind of the same way. And so I just think that there are certain things that happen to us when we're young that Mm -hmm. almost guide us in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it definitely is a string that came all the way up to what I'm doing now. And I wish mom could be here to see what I'm doing now, because I think she'd be pretty mm-hmm. excited about it. But I like to think that she knows. Wow. You know, Annie, you will be the 99th episode of this podcast. And, <gasps> and I think I think that that might be one of the most powerful origin stories I've heard yeah. in all yeah. 99 episodes. Well, and, and being raised by a single mom, someone who she had her own thoughts about the world, and she was very strong and opinionated herself, and she taught all of us to really stick up for the things you believe in, yeah. whether it, it might be hard for you, it's harder for someone else. And she always supported us in that, you know, teachers that didn't like it. I mean, be polite. We were we were raised to be very polite and respectful, but not to back down if it really meant yeah. sticking up for something we believed in or someone that we saw mm. that was being bullied or not treated fairly. And that's a big thread through our family. Yeah, I love the idea that the belief that you're talking about here is actually, you know, a belief in the right to ask questions. 
and that there is there is no bad question. Yeah. And and I think that that's awesome. That's a great way to kind of begin this conversation, which is actually, you know, generated around a series of, of questions really that you continue to ask as you do the work that you're doing. So we'll get into that. So Annie, you, you shared with me some of the most important and influential books in your life. And the one in your list that really caught my attention is titled Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. And my daughter, Emma, teaches in a nature immersion program in Northern Mm -hmm. California that works to reconnect to kids with the outdoors, which is really what this book is about. So what does this book mean to you, Annie? And in what ways do you carry Last Child in the Woods with you as you live your life and, and do your educator work day in and day out? This book came to me towards the end of my time as a classroom teacher. I taught, you know, 21 years history, geography, civics in a middle school. And before I segued into a K-12 curriculum role, I had an opportunity for a few summers to be a park ranger. Mm. They had a teacher ranger program through the National Park Service. It was sort of a pilot at that time. I believe now it's a full-time program. And I was assigned to Richmond National Battlefield Park, which is an interesting location in Mm -hmm. the park rangers had a summer book read that they all did. They all read the same book and then they had some discussions on it. And that was the book my first summer. And it really drew in a lot of my my own love for playing outdoors as a kid. You know, we, we would go outside and my mother would have to beg us to come in when the sun went down. Mm. We lived, you know, in kind of a wooded area. So we had lots of places to play. I worked as a summer camp counselor. So I had, you know, that experience every summer through high school and college working in the outdoors and teaching kids about nature and working with kids on developing kind of that geographic lens of ways to look at the landscape. So this was all kind of already ingrained in me, both a personal and professional level. But that book talked about the the phrase he used was that kids with all the video games and and Mm -hmm. electronic devices were suffering from nature deficit disorder. Mm, And that phrase really struck me as, you know, I, 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 took that into Charlottesville with me as well and used that book because I went from kind of a suburban, semi-rural part of Henrico County where I was a classroom teacher outside Richmond to an urban area in Charlottesville. And many of these children living in the city had never, ever been in, in the woods. And they had a program in Charlottesville with a local 4-H program where they took kids out to this 4-H camp just outside of Charlottesville. Mm. And you would have thought it was a whole separate planet for some of the kids. Yeah, They had never been out in the woods. They had never been camping. They had never, you know, all those things that I did as a Girl Scout and a summer camp counselor was very foreign to them. And so I quickly asked if I could be a part of it. That was really more of a science program, Mm. but I pushed in through the geography lens and said, I'd like to take kids out and teach them how to use a handheld GPS Mm. and how they map. Some of the things that they were doing were like water quality testing for science. I said, we could map those results and we could do that over a period of years so that by the time those kids get to sixth and eighth grade, we'd have data, you know, from if every fourth grade class takes that trip and they could learn to look at the water quality over a period of time through mapping. So mm. I was able to pull in the geography and the history and just getting kids outside. One of the activities we do is called reading the landscape. Mm. And they, they sit quietly, which is hard for fourth graders. It's hard for adults, but they spread out and they listen and they use their five senses and they feel the grass and the wind and the sun on their cheeks and they observe, you know, what, what are we seeing and how those things are related. And it's a really 
beautiful mm. exercise to connect kids to nature. And so any opportunity like that where I can pull all those things in and then they write a reflective journal. Mm. And it, it was a surprise to some of the kids how much they enjoyed it. At first they were afraid an ant was going to crawl on them or yeah. you know that sort of thing. But after we got over that, I had kids asking, can we go there again? Yeah. And I knew they were hooked. So that book, I think it would be a must read for any parent or teacher or Girl Scout leader or anyone that works with kids. And I think some adults need to read that book too, you know, mm. just for their own. Oh, I love a good device and I work in a digital technology field now, but I think it is important that place-based learning that we get kids out to places like Mint. Mount Vernon in the room where it happened, so to speak. Yeah. Not just read about them in a textbook. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, Annie, as I was preparing for today's conversation, my daughter in California, you know, and everybody else in California is getting pummeled by giant mm. storms that are coming through. And she's in Marin County, north of San Francisco. And, you know, you would have thought that it was, I mean, it's completely reasonable to shut down her outdoor program with the kiddos for a few days because of the weather. But in fact, I've been getting a stream of texts from her as the kids are out there observing the raging streams and, you know, looking at the ways that nature has been altered by these storms and all that. And with the full consent of the parents and everything and support. And it just, you know, it gives me goosebumps thinking about how she's establishing those connections between nature and the, and the kids and their ability to be observers, as you as you described, you know, being able to read a landscape which is really awesome. So that's great. Annie, you list 16 entries in your resume under the heading career highlights and accomplishments. And you noted to me two of them, which were particularly meaningful. One is the REB Award, REB Award for Teaching Excellence, which came from the Richmond Community Foundation in 2000, and which you called a game changer moment in your life. And the other was the Grosvenor Fellowship, which you said was your highest honor and led to extraordinary opportunities for travel. So how was the Reb Award a game changer and how was the Grosvenor Fellowship equally so? Again, are kind of tied to my love of geography and history. The REB Foundation gives awards, they're an incredible organization that works with the Community Foundation to match up teachers and university level programs and opportunities. So it, it paid for my master's degree. It flat out paid for every single bit of it. Mm. And in addition to that, it allowed me to participate in a field experience, which was a month-long course traveling all across the United States on Amtrak for a month with wow. Virginia Tech. Oh my. And we stopped, yeah, we stopped at several different places and were hosted by different universities and dorms. So it was kind of like this traveling field experience that was a college credit course. And it counted as my field experience to finish that master's degree. Mm. And from that, I was invited back for seven more summers to be a K-12 liaison to the professors. Wow. So after that, I, I repeated that trip numerous times. We changed the route around. We eventually went across the 
United States and then came back through Canada because mm. some Canadian professors heard about it and wanted to get in on it. Mm. We had hundreds of teachers in Virginia participate over that time. And I was able to work with them to develop classroom lessons and resources. We had anyone from kindergarten to art teachers to middle school to high school and even a couple of college instructors, some museum educators. So we had this wonderful network that we continue to benefit from in another organization I work with as the Virginia Geographic Alliance. Mm. And so that was part of a big network across all 50 states of universities helping K-12 teachers with things like setting up field experiences or developing courses specifically for teachers through teacher outreach programs. So it was just this tremendous opportunity for me as both a learner and then to be able to give back in a way to other teachers. And it really cemented my relationship with the Geographic Alliance. I'm the co-coordinator now, mm -hmm. you know, 30 some years later. Right. And it's still a, an organization that is literally family to me. And I think getting teachers, you know, many of our teachers are already underpaid and overworked and they don't get an opportunity to travel and they don't get assistance with things like tuition. And to be able to complete that master's degree without having a lot of debt, because I had literally just finished paying off my regular student loan debt for my undergrad degree that I, you know, paid every penny of my own college. Mm. And so it was nice to not have to go into debt again to do that. Right. So that was the first one. The Grosvenor Fellowship came about several years later. It was a new program at Nat Geo and they were awarding teachers field experience travel opportunities again. And I was nominated by the Geographic Alliance coordinator at the time and that award allowed you to select at the time, and so they've kind of changed the model now, but at that time, they would allow you to select any place that a Lindblad Expeditions ship mm. that had, a, had an at Geo partnership wherever they traveled. And they had a brand new route. I'm literally the only one that got to do this route. Wow. They did it one time. It was to East Africa. So we visited several countries in the Indian Ocean, we went to the Seychelles, the French Comores, we went to Tanzania. We were supposed to go to Madagascar and literally a week before we left, there was a military coup. And at that time, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and I got a letter saying, you're not going to Madagascar, we've revoked that visa, you know, for security reasons, but that was a learning experience in itself. So I had a month on the Indian Ocean on a cruise ship. I was allowed to take my sister with me she was not the most adventurous one of the family, so I had to do a little arm twisting there. Mm. But she went and we had an amazing experience, but it really opened my eyes. You know, as much as we complain in, in public schools about not having resources and not being paid, it's not until you go to a part of the world where in some cases they don't even have a school building. They yeah. have no supplies. They have no resources. And yet these teachers were in some cases, setting up outdoor classrooms in these remote places where they didn't have a school mm. and they didn't even have a licensed teacher. It was just someone older in that locality that wanted to make sure kids learned to read and write and learned, you know, basic skills. And I admired their persistence. And when I got home, I made sure that we found a way through Lindblad. They were so kind to take some maps and other supplies, things that, you know, I had extra in my classroom. My friends donated things. And we were able to get some things back to them. But while we were there, Captain Phillips got kidnapped, his whole crew. Oh, right. We were literally less than 200 miles from there. So National Geographic has never repeated that route again. Yeah. They have yeah. said it will be a very long time, if ever, if they do. And so my poor family, you know, there I had my sister with me and my other family back home is looking at the itinerary and looking at the news 
and kind of freaking out, but we were all very safe. And Nat Geo did a great job of protecting us and getting us out of that situation very quickly. Mm. But it, it was a little hairy. My students were worried, you know, their, their moms and dads told them like, she'll be fine. You know, Miss Evans, she'll, uh, my brother-in-law laughed and said, it'll be like ransom of Red Chief. They'll pay us to take Ann back. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Laughed about. right. You know, Annie, it, if I could wave my magic wand, if I were the Secretary of Education for the United States, we talk so much about, you know, professional development in terms of pedagogical, you know, initiatives. But if I could wave my magic wand, it would be to create sort of a massive fund that would give opportunities for teachers to travel. And I, th- I think that it's just, it's a bit of secret sauce about how you open up the horizons of educators and give them an opportunity to kind of pass that opening up of horizons down to their kids. And I, I wonder what you think about that. I mean, it just, it just seems to me in all of the episodes that I've done on this podcast so far, many of them have been with guests who have traveled and how that travel, you know, they've explained how that travel really changed their lives as educators, right? And I wonder what you think about that. I am such a huge proponent of field experiences for students and teachers. Yeah. You know, getting to go to so many different historical sites instead of just reading about them in textbook as a kid. My mom, you know, even though she had these five kids on her own after we lost her dad really early in life, she always managed to make sure that we had a respect for history. We had a respect for open spaces at one point they were going to close our local park and my mom put together a SWAT team of moms <laughs> to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, I have a very vivid memory of that time. I'm the board of supervisors. I have been told since then were feared my mother mm. because she did not take no for an answer. I wonder where I got that from, mm. but you know, just the, the freedom to have an open space for kids to play, yeah. but also to learn because there's so much learning that occurs through play and connecting to nature and appreciating nature. And that all ties back into geography. You know, you mentioned what your daughter's class is going through. Mm-hmm. In geography, we call that that one of the themes of geography is human environment interaction. And yeah. people impact the environment in the choices we make, but sometimes the environment impacts us with hurricanes and floods. And that's all part of our science curriculum and its geography curriculum. And I think that kids need to understand that we're having floods and we're having more frequent storms as a result of choices that we as humans make and that policymakers have made and continue to make. And making those connections to kids, again, getting them outside to see evidence of it like your daughter is, instead of reading about it in a book or being tested on it on a multiple choice test. So I'm very big on field experiences for kids of all ages, zero to a hundred. Yeah. And I think that you're using the phrase field experiences makes it a little bit easier to market with the public. Who, yeah, who might... I, I, if I could, I would get rid of the word field trip because field trip implies one and done. Yippee, it ain't yeah. no school. But very rarely as a kid did those field trips connect to what we did the week before or the week after. It was just a day out of school and it was fun. But I've tried really intentionally in my work to make sure that you prepare kids really well before you take them to a museum or a historical site or out to a nature camp and making sure that it connects to the, what we're going to do when we get back. What are we yeah. going to do with that experience? And being very particular about the activities that we do and engage in while we're on site. Yeah. So changing just that little tweak from field trip to field experience 
those are words that geographers use and that scientists use. And I want our kids to start hearing that academic vocabulary in a way that could turn to a career for them. Like you could have a job doing this every day if that's what you choose and you yep. have a passion for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Annie, one more question before we go to our first break. You shared with me that you developed and piloted the first collaborative co-teaching model in your school division, a, a personal mission, frankly, after working with your learning disabled brother and hearing impaired nephew for years as they struggled in self-contained classes that were not challenging and did not hold their attention. So this feels like a story that will help our listeners get to know you a little bit more. So briefly, what was the collaboration and in what ways was it the development of a caring and connected community that engaged learners of all sorts? I am very passionate about this topic. So as you mentioned, my brother had what we kind of thought of as the triple threat of learning disabilities. He had dyslexia, dysgraphia, and dyscalculia, which meant reading, math, and writing were a challenge for him. But he mm -hmm. also was tested way high on the gifted scale. And the, the folks where we grew up in Fairfax County didn't quite know what to do with them because, you know, if you were in the gifted magnet school, you couldn't also have an IEP at that time. And then we had a, a nephew who was hearing impaired and, you know, they tried to send him to a special school with all hearing impaired children. And it made them feel different. It made them feel like they couldn't be with their friends and they struggled in school academically, but also socially. And my brother ended up dropping out of school by the time he got to high school, which broke our mom's heart. Mm. But he just said, I'm done with this. You know, I'm, I've been with the same seven kids my entire life. Yeah. And I'm sick of it. And I'm stuck in this little room and I never get to have the really cool conversations like Anne and Mary have when they come home from school and talk about all the neat classes they're taking. Mm -hmm. So I knew when I started teaching that I didn't want any child to ever feel the way that my nephew and my brother did. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we had a very overcrowded school at the time and there was a special education teacher who was assigned to teach literally in a closet that year because all the classrooms were overcrowded. Wow. And she had seven kids crammed into this very small room that was supposed to be for textbooks. And it was right across the hall from my class and they assigned her to teach social studies. She'd always mm -hmm. taught math. She knew nothing about US history. So she was telling me about this. And I said, well, what if <laughs> after the bell, yeah. what if after the bell rings each day, you and your kids sneak over to my room and then we'll just make sure that two minutes before the bell rings, you sneak back and nobody will ever know, right? Oh we think God. we're getting away with something. And we contacted all the parents because we knew that there were IEPs in play and we didn't want to get in trouble. The yeah. parents were so thrilled that their kid wouldn't be stuck in a closet oh, and that they would my. get to be in a regular class. But, it, you know, the kids were sworn to secrecy. Mm. I'm looking back at this now, you know, 20-year-old <laughs> Annie didn't always make some great choices. I could have probably gotten in trouble. I'm pretty sure he violates federal laws, but <laughs> the kids loved it. And we got away with this for a long time. And then the morning after the Gulf, the first Gulf War broke out, you know, the kids woke up and teachers woke up and realized that the first President Bush had declared war. And we had a lot of kids that were military families in that part of Richmond, and they were scared that their mom and dad could get deployed. So when they came in and the other class snuck over, I said, I know we were supposed to talk about such and such today, but I think most of you have a lot of questions about what happened last night. So I launched into kind of a little mini history of the Gulf region and where things were in these countries. And this is what happened last night. And right in the middle of the lesson, the door opens and the principal and the superintendent walk in. Oh my. 
And I looked up and I thought, I am so fired right now. And the, <laughs> and the special ed teacher looked at me like, we are both losing our job today. But I, I didn't blink. I, all I said was to one of the kids, can you go get Dr. Edwards and Mr. Vecchioni a chair? And they did. And then I said, you know, would you guys like a map? Because they were working on coloring, coloring a map as I spoke to them. And mm. so they were seated and they started working on the map and they had to share a desk because we were very crowded. And at the end of the lesson, the kids left and it happened to be my planning period. And I thought, this is where they tell me to pack up my box, you know, and leave. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the superintendent said, your class is very crowded. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And I'm confused why there's two teachers in here. And we just flat out told him and we told him why. And we told him it had been working really well and that the parents were all in on it. And he looked at the principal and said, let's get her a few more desks and chairs so they don't mm. have to keep carrying them across the hall. And next year, let's see if we can find her a bigger room. And mm. let's maybe pilot this officially. And that's what happened. And so the next year, we sort of had our, our schedules aligned and she co-taught with me. And the following year, they rolled it out to other schools across the county. Now it's how we do business at all the schools. But back then it was a foreign concept and we didn't get fired. Mm. And the kids thought it was great. You know, they felt like they had won a little victory there. So yeah. it made me very much aware that sometimes breaking the rules is okay if you're doing it in a way that is going to benefit kids and doing the right thing. And it kind of goes back to that Girl Scout moment with my mom, you know, yep. keep asking those questions and don't be afraid to stick up for what you believe in. So yeah. I was really glad that it, I'm glad I didn't get fired. Mm -hmm. Definitely glad my, my co-leader didn't get fired, but the kids benefited. I think I sent you a letter that a parent wrote about that experience. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And it really changed. I've had many of my kids come back to me in later years and say, that was the year when I decided not to give up on school. And I told them about my brother. Like they all knew my whole family origin story. They were well aware that I had a nephew that was hearing impaired. Sometimes he even came and visited us. He was around the same age as that class. Mm. So it, it was a big moment. That's a great story, Annie. And it just speaks volumes about who you are as a person and who you are as an educator and, and the ways that you engage your kids. I just love that. And I love the letter from the parent. I loved reading that. And so, you know, there you go. Listeners out there, if there's a moment, well, don't want you to get fired, but definitely want you to push the envelope a little bit in the interests of the kids. And I hope you're inspired by Annie's story. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Annie Evans. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from Entre Ed. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the Entre Ed Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Annie Evans, whose objective is to provide instructional support to educators, ensuring every child develops skills in historical thinking and geoliteracy in preparation for becoming engaged citizens and leaders in their communities. So Annie, back in 1916, automaker and industrialist Henry Ford said, and I quote, history is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. We want to live in the present, and the only history that is worth a tinker's dam is the history we make today, unquote. So, Annie, this is your moment to talk about why history is not bunk and what you and your colleagues are doing to refute Mr. Ford, lo these 107 years later. Thank you. That's a really big opportunity. And what I'm doing now at the University of Richmond is working on a project that was created by historian Ed Ayers. If you're not familiar with Dr. Ayers' work, he has been pioneering and championing digital scholarship and using modern tools to teach about the past really since the internet began. I first became aware of his work as a beginning teacher about three years into my teaching career, I went to a social studies conference and he was presenting this project he'd been working on with his students at UVA called the Valley of the Shadow. Mm. And it was basically he and his students, instead of him telling them about the Civil War, he had them researching and scanning thousands of primary source documents, diaries, letters, images, maps, church records, military records, birth and death records, any type of data you could get about these two small towns in the Civil War. And, you know, teaching in Richmond, Virginia, everything about Richmond is about the Civil War. But in many ways, the story that they were telling was this lost cause theory version. I was getting a lot of pushback from parents when I got to the unit on the Civil War because I was not teaching it as the war of Northern aggression or the war between the states. And at that time, that's what parents had been, you know, brought up to believe and, and raised to believe. And I lived on Monument Avenue with these statues that I had to pass every day on my way to school. And so it was a challenge. And hearing this young, eager professor so enthusiastic about the internet, and it was right around that same time that I had taken my first class at Virginia Tech in the summer to fulfill some of the master's degree. And that's how I got into that train trip that we spoke of earlier. And that's where I was introduced to Netscape and GIS. And those two worlds sort of collided. And I thought, this is the way that I'm going to engage kids in a discussion about the Civil War Mm. and a bigger discussion about history and how we know what we know about history and how there are lots of different versions of how that history is told. So Dr. Ayer's work inspired me early on. I continued to follow his you know, you've written several books on history education, and I've seen him lectured thousands of times. But there was an opportunity about four years ago, a colleague at UVA asked me if I would like to connect with him, that he had, you know, moved on to University of Richmond. And for the last 10 years, he had been the president of that university after 
over 20 years in the classroom at UVA and being a dean there. And he had established a digital scholarship lab at both UVA and U of R. And, and at U of R, they were making these amazing maps. Mm. And they wanted someone that he was giving a keynote for UVA and they wanted someone to make some lessons that correlated to the maps. And so they connected me with him and we hit it off right away. And I kind of told him my story about seeing the Valley of the Shadow and how my own students would live at the end of each day when they finished their work to go back and look at his database and mm. read those letters and diaries. Mm -hmm. and, and they wanted to follow these soldiers' lives and their girlfriends and their wives and their children and what happened to them. And it really got them to look at the human side of different conflicts in American history, not just the Civil War, but then they began to question, or are there letters and diaries for other wars? So, you know, my dad served in the Korean War. He and my mother wrote some very, very detailed letters back and forth, and I had all those. So I brought my own dad's letters in from the Korean War later on in the year. It just really got kids thinking about war and conflict yeah. and history in a different way. And so now we have a website called Bunk yep. and it connects what's happening in the news and current events to other aspects of history and geography. And it includes podcasts and videos and newspaper articles and professional journals. And it's this really interesting search engine where you can put in almost any topic or any event that's happening now and it will show you how it's connected to the past through a series of other forms of media. Mm. And it's a fascinating site. The first time Dr. Ayer showed it to me, I told him it looked like nerd Pinterest. I don't know if he appreciated <laughs> that very much, but but the teachers love it when I use that analogy because, you know, to us that is kind of what it what it is. But yeah. now I get to develop learning resources, pulling in the maps and pulling in the connections that we can make through our bunk website. Um, Dr. Ayers hosted a podcast called Backstory for many, many years with some mm -hmm. colleagues. We have all those audio segments chunked into smaller pieces. And I get to mix all those into learning resources that kind of like a Lego, you can pull out a piece of it and use it, or you can use the whole thing. And other teachers around the country are now helping me develop these learning resources, pulling in these digital mm. technologies to showcase new ways to think about and learn about and discuss history. And kids really seem to love it. So I actually want to talk about backstory in particular. And just before we do that, Annie, I just want to share that there was this moment in my family here in Hawaii where we found a giant kind of sheath of letters that my mother and father wrote to each other while he was serving in Guadalcanal during World War II as a medic. And we were blown away by what it revealed to us about the two of them that we never really knew as their children, you know? And I, that's the magic of history. That's why I wanted to become a history teacher is because of those kinds of moments where you engage people in what history really is, which is the primary sources. So having said that, let's pretend, Annie, that I find a massive massive archive of super cool podcast episodes about U.S. history at a site called Backstory, right? And I mean, there are zillions of short to medium length episodes in which historians host talks about a particular subject. For example, the historical and present use of chain gangs as a way for prisoners to give back to society or the history of cursing, for example. So let's pretend I'm a young history teacher just starting to see how to teach using primary and secondary sources. And there's a growing sense on my part that my job is to train young people to be historians, not fill them up with stuff. So what 
do I do any with this massive backstory archive? Like, how do I actually use the tool to engage my kids and to move them along the timeline of becoming a historian? And I know that's a big question, so we kind of got to keep it sort of contained, but you know. beginning teachers as I introduce them to the archive or even veteran teachers who've never used podcasting as a tool, I always encourage them to think about what are you currently required to teach that either hasn't gone well in the past, the kids have not been as engaged in that topic, or that you maybe don't feel comfortable with your own background knowledge on that topic. And let's search in backstory for that first. Mm. And Mm -hmm. then let's have your students perhaps take a deep dive into that topic when you get to that part of your curriculum in the year. And Mm. then I encourage them to perhaps let them then think of topics after they've had a chance to listen to whatever segments related to that topic, then let them develop their own podcast. We have a learning resource that kind of sets that up. It, It talks about podcasting history. And we did that to sort of say goodbye to Backstory. Backstory was on for over 13 years. And the hosts and moderators changed a little bit over the years. But even before the pandemic, they had sort of announced at the beginning of that academic year that this would be their last year after 13 years doing it. Mm. And so as kind of my way to say thank you and goodbye to Backstory, we created this learning resource where we not only looked at Backstory and went kind of through the archives, but then had a segment on how kids could produce their own. So asking kids to then model what Backstory did Go and research your own topics. And so they could use Bunk, they could use other backstory segments to sort of build their own idea for a podcast and create their own that would appeal to their friends and people in their age group. Hmm. And I had a lot of very dedicated backstory listeners write to me. We released it on the same day as the final episode. And I had so many college instructors and K-12 teachers reach out and tell me, thank you. That was such a nice way to say goodbye to an old Mm. friend. And I've had kids since then tell me that, you know, during the pandemic, we had a lot of kids really get into podcasting, listening to podcasts, but also making their own. There were kids that were kind of sharing their experiences being home and quarantined and separated from their friends and, and not being able to go to school. And so lots of kids really got into podcasting on both ends as a listener and a producer of podcasts. So mm-hmm. podcasting's having a moment and I haven't seen it back down, you know, even as things sort of went back to normal, although they really haven't. Yeah, and so yeah. I'm excited for the next generation of Ed Ayers or Joanne Freeman's or Nathan Conley's who are going to host these podcasts. And we've seen such a proliferation of history-themed podcasts in the last two or three years. And I think a lot of that comes out of both the pandemic, but also great models. We were really excited. The Library of Congress has a wing or a section called AAPB, American Association of Public Broadcasters, or American Archive of Public Broadcasters. And we were the first podcast to be officially archived in its entirety over at the Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. And That was kind of a big honor, I think, for the hosts. And we turned the archive over to New American History just because it had been previously hosted at the University of Virginia. And when the podcast ended, that staff went away and they moved on to other projects. There was no one there that was 100% dedicated to maintaining it. And so as links would break and things, we just want to make sure that teachers and kids always had access to all of those episodes 
And so we moved the archive over. And that's when I said, well, if we're going to move it over, can we chunk it into shorter pieces so teachers don't have to fast forward like they used to to get to that one segment that they really need? And so that's what we did. And we also enhanced the search features greatly. So if a kid doesn't spell the word exactly right, it's still, if they get close, they can find the topic they're looking for. So features like that, we're always thinking about how do we make it better for kids and teachers? So I'm really pleased with the way that our backstory archive turned out. That's awesome. You know, Anna, you shared with me that your students loved Fridays after school because you all would listen mm-hmm. to episodes of Backstory as you tidied the room and prep for the next week, which sounds to me like school started right after school. <laughs> I wonder- well, it was a radio show first. It wasn't a podcast. So yeah. that's why we would stay on Fridays. It came on about 3.30 in oh, Richmond. okay. And so we would, you know, that's right around the time school let out. So- I had a little group of kids. And to be honest, some of them were just trying to delay going home for the weekend because <laughs> home wasn't always a safe or yeah. a happy place. Yeah. And so they just started staying because they loved listening to it. And they also had fun together. You know, they sort of felt like they were the insiders. They knew it was going to happen next week because they got things ready for me. You know, they would put image sets together or, you know, just whatever I was doing, changing the bulletin boards or writing things on the board. They, they seemed to like that insider scoop. But the main thing that they seemed to love was listening to the radio yeah. and listening to these vivid stories. And they had a call-in feature when it was a radio show. And the kids were every Friday like, can we call in? Can we call oh, in? And we did. We awesome. tried so hard <laughs> that we never, we never got our call because, you know, this had millions of listeners across yeah. the country. So yeah. we never got on there. But they loved, I think, listening to the listener questions and answers almost as much as the stories that were part of the regular show. I think they just got a big kick out of that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, Annie, before we go to break, our second break, we... We need to tackle something huge and hopefully put a bow on this section of our conversation. So I feel like there is potentially significant risk in the following question because of the assumptions it makes, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So how, Annie, do you take a traditional history teacher, a skilled and veteran sage on the stage, delivering, or maybe not a veteran, it could be, could be a new teacher as well, but skilled, sage on the stage, delivering lectures and working from a textbook, grading papers, writing student comments, and, and transform her into a guide on the side, skilled at using massive digital resources like Bonk or the Valley of the Shadow or Backstory or Atlas of Virginia or American Panorama to train young people to be historians and all that that implies. So what is your persuasion, Annie? What is your evangelical approach to her? How will you convert her? And and sorry, I know that this is like the biggest question of all. How do you go about doing that? So every instance is a little different. A lot of times there are teachers who know that their kids are not engaged with their content. They know that staying behind a podium is not working, and yet they don't feel confident enough in their own content background knowledge. Yeah. And so sometimes it's just a matter of inviting them in separate from their duties as a teacher, inviting them in themselves as a learner, mm. inviting them to a film screening or inviting them to a discussion that we're having about, you know, one of the maps and bringing them in themselves as a learner first. Uh. And then also having a conversation in an informal setting. You know, a lot of times as a K-12 coordinator, I had teachers like that, that I had to nudge. And a lot of times I'd say, let's go get some coffee after school and brainstorm ways that we might make that economics unit a little more engaging Mm. for the kids. Mm -hmm. Or 
I'm seeing that economics is a weak strand K-12 across our division. Could we maybe sit down, think about what you think would be a way that we could flip that around and make it? So, so it's a conversation. It's not, you're not teaching well and we need to fix you. You know, that's never a good way to approach a, yep. a veteran or a beginning teacher. Yep. And so I think kind of getting to the root of why it is that they're doing what they do instead of trying to fix it right away or, or you know, say that I know how to do it better than you. So watch me teach it. Mm. I've had more success starting informally that way or engaging Mm -hmm. them themselves as a learner. And then they say, whoa, this was really fun. Or I actually learned something or I enjoyed this. And then thinking about ways that we could slowly maybe just pick one unit and then pick another one later, you know, not try Mm -hmm. and say, we need to redo your whole syllabus right away. Right. So that's kind of how I've approached it. A lot of times when people go to a conference and they learn about bunk or they learn about new American history or they learn about American panorama, which is our digital maps, they, you know, they, they feel scared. Like, I don't know about GIS. I can't use those maps. Oh, that's fine. You don't need to. Like, if you look at the learning resources for every map, it always starts with don't tell the kids anything, give them 10 or 15 minutes to explore the map first. I guarantee you kids will find things on that map that even I didn't know were there. And I work with these maps every day and I love that. So getting us to be a learner first, instead of always having our teacher hat on, I think is really important. Yeah, I love that, Annie. And I I love the idea that slowly but surely you kind of hook the person into the engaged learning that we're talking about. But you also don't hold back from the idea that it does require some skill development to be able to work with the resources, but you don't have to be the expert of those digital resources. You have to be a guide who can help students just get into them and ask questions and then begin to use them in a way to produce some sort of result. For example, a podcast, as you were talking about, which is a possible way of demonstrating someone's learning, right? It's that process of releasing yourself from being the expert on something and allowing the kids to develop their expertise while you guide them on the side. Absolutely. I mean, we were in one of the first school divisions when I taught in Richmond in Henrico County to go one-to-one. Before there were Chromebooks, before Mm. one-to-one was even a thing, Dr. Edwards, the same superintendent who busted into my room that day, (laughs) he had this crazy idea about putting a MacBook in the hands of every kid, six through 12, and he contacted Steve Jobs. And so we were, I think, the second division in the country, but we were the first one to do it on a large scale. There was, I think, a group in Maine who had done it with just a grade level, but Dr. Edwards said, let's roll this out nine through 12 the first year and then six through 12 the next year. Steve Jobs came to our school division to kick it off. It was amazing. Mm. And I I remember years later, I was in Charlottesville when he passed away. And I remember I was standing on a corner waiting to cross the street and I looked down at my phone and, you know, we knew he'd been sick a while. And I remember thinking, how many people in the world can say that literally everyone in the world found out that they died at the exact same moment because they're all holding a device that you created. Mm. And that's the power of digital technology, right? Is this, we have access to massive amounts of information and communication in real time. We have to teach kids how to use that responsibly and for good, not just to be mean to each other in cyberspace, right? And that's a whole other new dimension to teaching that didn't exist when I first started. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be right back with more questions for Annie Evans. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. 
I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Hey everyone, we are back with Annie Evans, the Director of Education and Outreach for New American History at the University of Richmond in the great state of Virginia. So, Annie, ever since I read Zoe Wiles' book, The World Becomes What We Teach, which is focused on the idea of educating generations of so-called solutionaries. And I, I just want to explain that for a second. A solutionary is somebody who takes an approach to problem solving that's highly ethical and moral and looks at all of the elements of a particular solution to make sure that what might be good for one person is terrible for another. So as I read this book, I... and. I vowed to myself, Annie, that I would ask every podcast guest a question about it. So you shared with me a wonderful post by a National Geographic Society notable Dan Edelson about, quote, geo-education and how being, quote, geo-literate prepares learners to make decisions and develop solutions to problems. So what is geo-learning, Annie, and what is the connection between geo-learning and geo-literacy and being a human-centered and ethical moral decision-maker and solution developer? Sure. So Danny is a, a tremendous educator. He led the National Geographic Education Network for many years, and he really spearheaded this idea of taking geo-literacy into all content areas that we teach in schools, into communities, into local policy making. And so we have tried to frame a lot of our work as teachers, as curriculum specialists, and with the geographic alliance that I currently help co-lead. In all those aspects, the idea that teaching kids about different systems, human systems, physical systems, which would be things like environmental science, those storms that your daughter's grappling with yeah. in California fall into that category. Yeah. But you know, a lot of people think geography is just memorizing states and capitals, and that is definitely not what being geoliterate is all about. It's understanding that human-environment interaction that I spoke of, that choices that we make as humans are going to have ripple effects on the physical environment that we all live in. And the solutionary thinking movement that you spoke of really fits well into the idea that choices we make are going to not just affect us, they're going to affect our communities, things like the drinking water yep. and the air we breathe, where we place an interstate highway. You know, a lot of our work at U of R with the Digital Scholarship Lab has been around these, these series of maps, and it's a big topic of conversation on redlining, right? But mm -hmm. redlining is so much more than just 
a bunch of maps that were found in a drawer that indicated that a long time ago after the Great Depression during the New Deal, these maps were drawn to color code neighborhoods. There's so many more layers to unpeel from that story. And being a solutionary thinker, if we had done that back then, we'd be living in a much different world now. Issues like fair housing and access to a grocery store and clean drinking water and clean air to breathe would be so different. Many families were basically robbed of the opportunity to own a home or to own a home in a neighborhood where their children would have access to a really great school or have access to amenities that other people's children had, like parks, Mm. right? Like green spaces. So I think that that is something that we want to make sure that we are preparing the next generation to make better choices. And Mm. so by being geoliterate, if every high school, instead of plugging things into silos, like you take this many science classes and that many history classes, let's have a thread that runs throughout the curriculum where we are reading literature. And I'm going to use example. Rothstein had a book that talked about redlining the color of law. And some kids in Vermont that I became acquainted with were reading it in their English class. And they asked the English teacher, why aren't we learning about this in history? Like, it seems more like a history book. And the teacher said, oh, that's a good question. Why don't you ask your history teacher? Mm. You could kind of tell by the tone of voice when the kids were imitating her that those teachers did not get along, right? (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. they asked their history teacher, like, why aren't we studying this in history? And the teacher said, it's not on the test. Oh, my God. And I'm sitting in a webinar where these kids are talking about this. You know, I tune into anything that I think is touching on our work. And I knew if something was on redlining, our map would come up. So... They went on to say, well, we don't care. We, we're curious. We have questions about this. We want to know more. Can you please tell us about it? And the teacher said no. Hmm. So they went after school and asked the principal, why aren't we learning about this in our science class and our history class? And they told him that the teacher said it wasn't on the test. So he called an emergency faculty meeting. Hmm. He made every teacher in that building listen. Uh, hang on a minute. I, I've left one part out. They went home that night and made their own lesson. Mm. They used mm-hmm. our map of course. and made their own lesson and said, can we just have 10 minutes to teach it? And the teacher still said no. Yeah. So they went to the principal. He called a faculty meeting. He told the teachers, everybody will listen to them now because tomorrow we're going to have a one hour snow delay schedule. But instead of snow, you're going to all teach this lesson that these kids made. Mm. And wow. they did. Wow. And I'm, I was so impressed with these children. So I think if we empower kids to think that way, that I don't need to wait for the teacher to teach me everything. I can read this book. I can find this map. I can reach out to the adults who made this map, which is what they did. And now they've got kids all over the country using this map and they formed their own little group. They meet on their own. They set up their own Zoom calls. I'm, I'm the only quote unquote grown up that attends these meetings. They ask if I would keep coming. I kind of feel like their grandma now, but they are meeting and they are making their own presentations. And one kid up in Toronto said, well, we're not on those maps because we're in Canada, but we think it went on here too. And so they started looking at their local public records and lo and behold, yeah, they were redlining type policies in Canada. And so now these kids have started their own little underground network of students. And I love it. Wow. I love that, it. That's just fabulous. That's and and wow, shades of Mount Vernon, right? You you ask yeah. and you be and you're ignored and and that sparks something. Look, full circle, yeah. Annie, all the way back to the beginning. And so kind of Annie, speaking of, you're directing me to Made by Us, which is an awesome resource, led me to another marvelous discovery, a medium blog by Rutgers University professor Mark Schaefer about the many uses of chat GPT. And this might be one of the first 
times in any podcast focused on education that an educator gets a chance to talk about this. I know it's very early in the process. So at the risk of losing some of our <laughs> listeners, because I'm not going to take the time to explain chat GPT, let's just assume that whoever's listening kind of understands it. What are your early thoughts about this emerging technology? And again, this is kind of a solutionary thing, right? That everyone is calling a true game changer. And by the way, I'm struck by the fact that when someone uses chat GPT, Annie, the AI will use all of your digital sites as sources, panorama, you know, American panorama, everything likely better than humans can. The irony of that is just completely rich to me. But anyway, what are your initial thoughts at this point as the education world wakes up to the idea of what chat GPT can do? Yeah. So when this, you know, technology first started getting talked about on social media, immediately I saw a pushback from many people. Oh, this is terrible. Plagiarism. Yep. Kids are never going to learn to write a decent sentence. Yep. And I feel like we've seen this with any kind of new technology that comes out. Yeah. There's almost always this group that wants to immediately ban it and have it, you know, a policy against it or have it filtered out. They can't access it on their student laptops. I kind of thought this same fight in my previous division when Grammarly came out, right? Mm, Grammarly yeah. would would give kids writing tips based on the their most frequent mistakes. And I said, this is great. You know, <laughs> I, I would love to have the Grammarly app added to our Chromebooks. And the history teachers were okay with it. And the science teachers were okay. And the math teachers didn't really care. But the English department went nuts. And our yeah. tech director said, well, let's just pilot it with a few. And the students really loved it. And I said, why not let the kids learn to use the tools while we're still here to help guide them that they're going to use in the workforce, right? I saw this when they added calculators to the SAT. I saw this, you know, when spell check first came out. And so the first reaction, if someone feels threatened that my position as the person who teaches grammar is threatened somehow by this new technology, I, I feel like we would never have had the wheel if we had done that, you know? Oh, well, I've always carried things on my back. Mm -hmm. You know, I think mm -hmm. there's always people who want to push back on any new innovation because they don't feel comfortable with it. I am thrilled with the idea that all of us can improve our writing or that all of us can maybe take some of those mundane tasks like writing directions on how to, you know, put together a piece of Ikea furniture. Wouldn't it be great if ChatGPT could make those directions a little easier to understand? Amen. And there are other, there, there were already existing technologies. In our learning resources, I've been adding teaching tips for a website called Rewordify, where you can take a bunk article that might be too high of a reading level for a kid and put it into Rewordify and it rewrites it at a slightly easier Lexile level. And then last summer, WordTune and WordTune Read came out. Yeah. WordTune Read will do the kind of the same thing as Rewordify, but WordTune will take what the kids have written and it will give them suggestions on how to improve their writing. Yep. And I think if we allowed kids to do that over and over again as they grew up as learners, that their writing would be much better by the time they are going to apply for that first job. And they do have to write letters of introduction. I think it, let's harness these tools and use them for good instead of automatically canceling them because yeah. we think that they need to learn how to do everything on their own. Yeah, could not agree more, Annie. A friend of mine, Mark Hines here in Honolulu, who was actually one of my early podcast guests, 
sent me an email last night. He asked ChatGPT to develop a professional development event for educators focused on the pros and cons of ChatGPT. And ChatGPT delivered a beautiful program <laughs> about itself, yeah. like, you know, the ways to approach it. And and I really, I couldn't agree more. I think this is just such a marvelous teaching moment. We used to call it or still do. And so that's great. So Annie, a couple more questions before we finish this awesome conversation today. I recently read a book called The Good Ancestor by Roman Krisnarek. And in it, the author describes a series of good ancestor questions and prompts that lead to deep conversations. And there are six of them, and they are huge, and they live at the 30,000-foot level. And you selected one of them to respond to today. So I'm going to give it to you, and you can let her rip. So what legacy, Annie, do you want to leave for your family and your community and for the living world? You, Annie Evans of Virginia, what is that legacy? My greatest hope as a legacy would be for learners of all ages to be open to looking at history in new ways, much in the way that we look at medicine or we look at scientific discoveries. It's, you know, this pushback and this polarized climate that we're living in now where people are calling it woke history or saying that we're trying to erase history. To me, I want kids... 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, mm. to look back on this time as not that we are trying to tear down history or rewrite it, but that we are looking at history through the lens of historical scholarship. And just like with scientific discoveries, we are learning new things about the past every day. Your family got their hands on a new archive that made you learn about your family history in a very different way. Uh -huh. We had the same experience when we found those letters between my mom and dad from the Korean War. Yeah. Dr. Ayers found that same experience when he and his students started delving into these you know, letters and diaries and records when they built the Valley of Shadow. Rob Nelson and the Digital Scholarship Lab found new ways of looking at public policy when those redlining maps were rediscovered in the National Archives. You know, all of these pieces are giving new generations new ways to think of it. We didn't have the, the health data, the public health data available back when those maps were made to let us know that if you put a national highway, an interstate highway through a neighborhood, that the people living on either side of that mm. are likely to have pollution and long-term public health effects. Yeah. We, they, you know, we didn't know perhaps when some of those other policies were made, like tearing down an entire family community and displacing them to build Dodger Stadium. A lot of people living in LA now have no idea when they go to a baseball game that there was a thriving community in Chavez Ravine prior to that stadium being built. Yeah. And when I did a lesson with kids in LA and I told them that and I showed them the images of the people who were displaced and, and interviews and oral histories that were taken later on with the folks whose lives were we're changed by that. That's when we start to see the, the term homeless pop up all across the country is all these communities that were displaced in the name of urban renewal. These are all layers that you peel back on the onion and kids 
want to know the truth. They want to know the stories and they're really connected to the, we put a human face on history. Mm. It's not just a boring thing that you read about in a textbook, getting them out to places in person, like let's take a field trip over to Dodger Stadium and let's look at what we see on the physical landscape. You know, what are the names of the businesses all around that neighborhood where Dodger Stadium is? Are there some of the names of the displaced families still today on some of those local landmarks? Yeah. That's interesting to kids. Yeah, I want kids to always ask questions like I did that day as a Girl Scout. And that's an awesome legacy, Annie. You know, I, you've actually helped me to realize that maybe some of the discord that we think we're experiencing here in this country, you know, that 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 actually might be coming from the fact that there are so many more social studies and history teachers who are working directly with the primary sources. And as that movement, if you will, grows, that there will be inevitable pushback because it's not the canon that was taught before. So maybe the discord is potentially evidence of success that in terms of social studies and history, that kids are engaging directly in the archives and are having opportunities to shape the story in their own ways. So maybe maybe there's hope in, in that sense. Yeah, I, I, we, did a, we did a film screening, a film that we've worked with the filmmakers before. They did a show called The Future of America's Past that Dr. Ayers hosted, and I was lucky to write the learning resources for. And the same filmmakers, Field Studio, made a beautiful film that they filmed in real time in Richmond called How the Monuments Came Down. Mm. And when the, when the film first came out, it was you know on the local PBS channels, and it was played across the country here and there on different PBS channels. But we just did a screening last weekend for the American Historical Association. So a lot of academic historians may have seen it for the first time. And we've done screenings for the last couple of years. And one of the screenings that we hosted one online virtually when schools were still closed and I said to the teachers, don't just invite the kids, have the kids bring their parents yeah. and then let's have a discussion. And so many parents told me afterwards, you know, I didn't even want to watch this movie. I didn't want to get in the middle of this ruckus, but I had no idea. And these were parents from all over the country, not just Richmond, but they said, I had no idea when these types of monuments were put up, the ones in our town and the ones in your town. And I had no idea why they were put strategically in places like courthouses or, you know, main thoroughfares like Monument Avenue. And so it opened up a really rich discussion. And every time I've shared this film many times with different audiences, and every time the adults in the audience sort of have this shell-shocked look on their face afterwards, like, I had no idea. I thought those yeah. monuments went up right after the Civil War, or I had no idea that Dodgers of the Confederacy controlled the local school curriculum and wrote the textbooks back then. And so I think kids are leading this, just like yes. the kids in Vermont with the redlining lessons. Yep. You know, you're not going to teach me about it. I'll make my own. Yep. Kids are not, it's not making the kids feel bad, which is what the CRT pushback. I don't want anything to make my kid feel bad. Yeah. I don't want anyone to feel bad either, but I do want them to develop historical empathy. Yeah. You know, same as we would with Holocaust education or talking about people who were incarcerated in Japanese internment camps and that sort of thing. So yeah. the kids get it. It's the adults that are having a hard time because it's challenging what they were taught in school many, many years ago. And they were always taught that history is a finite set of facts that you memorize to pass a test. And that's it. Yeah. And that is not that is not a rich history or geography or civics education. It's asking questions. It's uncovering new layers. It's changing our thinking as that new information becomes available. And that's the legacy 
that we're trying to leave with new American history in all of these tools and all of these projects that we're working on. Yeah, that's awesome. So Annie, as you know, I love to close episodes by giving guests an opportunity to shout out about giants upon whose shoulders they stand. So who is Dolores Wint? I hope I'm saying her last name correctly. Mm-hmm. And in what ways did Dolores help you fall in love with learning and life? Dolores Wint was my fifth grade teacher mm. and she herself loved history. And she made history the most engaging part of the day. You could tell when it was time for social studies, her whole demeanor changed. Mm. She had this look of joy on her face, no matter what topic she was exploring with us. And she didn't do all the talking. Many times she would put an object out on the table or a book, and we would look at the book in small groups or we would pass the object around and she would ask us what questions we had. She didn't jump right into saying, this is a bone from a dinosaur or, you know, this is a <laughs> handle to a, a well that was dug in someone's backyard. She made us try and figure out and ask mm, questions mm. before she told us the answer. And I loved that part of the day more than anything else. Mm. And even when I went up to middle school and high school, I would go back to visit her and I would tell her either the good things that some of my teachers were doing, but then I would also tell her some of the boring things like, why can't they teach like you used to teach us? You need to go up there and teach that teacher how to teach. And I I remember years later, I was, you know, beginning to teach and a friend ran into her and said, I saw Mrs. Went to the grocery store or something like that. And and I told her you were a history teacher. And he said, she smiled and said, I knew she was going to be a history teacher. Oh. I could tell even when she was, you know, 10 years old that that was the direction she was headed in. Right. So, and, and, and full disclosure, my brother was roommates with her son in college. So we were sort of connected through the years. Mm. And, and, mm-hmm. and I remember when she passed away, my brother called me and it was like he was calling to let me know a family member was gone because he knew how, mm. how much I admired her and she had affected the way that I thought about teaching so much. So yeah. she was an amazing educator and anyone who had her was a really lucky kid. That's a great story, Annie. Thank you. We'll dedicate this episode to Dolores. Ah, she would love that. Yeah. So Annie Evans, thank you for being on the show and please keep changing kids' lives in 2023 and beyond. And thank you, Annie, for all you do to support educators and their growth and development. And thank you for everything that you're doing to really engage young minds through the art of asking questions and everything else that you're doing. I really appreciate the time that you've taken with us today. And I really look forward to getting this episode out to our listeners. Thank you, Annie. Well, it was a joy to be with you today and, and it's a joy to be engaged in this work. So I'm, I'm very lucky. Awesome. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. 
The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.